Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the epistle 1 John, and I will be reading chapter 3 this Lord's Day. 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin, Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. God's word emphatically teaches that Christians are eagerly to look for the second coming of Christ. Dear ones, how often do you cast your thoughts with great anticipation to that glorious day when death will be swallowed up in victory? Consider the following passages from Scripture which compel you to lift up the eyes of your heart, the eyes of faith and gaze in hope upon the victorious second coming of Christ. Just two passages. Philippians chapter 3. First of all, Philippians 3. Beginning with verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You see that little phrase or those two words, eagerly wait. That's what the Lord calls his people to do is to eagerly wait for the Savior. And then again in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 And we find the same two words in English, one Greek word, as we'll look at in just a moment, but you find the same word, eagerly wait. Verse 27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The inspired prophet who wrote to the Hebrews here is even so bold as to say Christ will appear a second time to those who eagerly wait for his appearance. That casts the whole second coming of Christ in a particular way. 
The Lord is coming for those who eagerly wait for him. Now, the Greek word, and just a little lexical study here, bear with me. I think it will make sense, even if you try to follow me and you lose me somewhere along the line. I think by the end, you will see where I'm going with this. The Greek word used for eagerly wait in the two passages just read is the compound Greek word op ek dekamai. Op ek dekamai. It's actually three words in one. Op from apa, ek, and dekamai. Now, that's a fascinating word. The root word, dekamai, means to receive as a guest. Now, add the little preposition, apa, so that you have op dekamai, or apa dekamai, and the meaning of dekamai grows in intensity to this, to receive a guest favorably. See, adding prepositions in Greek intensifies the meaning of the root or base word. And so, apodekamai means to receive favorably. Now, add the little preposition ek to dekamai, ek dekamai, and the meaning changes slightly to this, to wait for someone. But add both apa and ek to dekamai, which is our word, op ek dekamai, and the word is intensified to its greatest degree to mean to earnestly and eagerly wait for someone. You see, dear ones, God is saying it is not sufficient to simply receive Christ as a guest at his second coming. Nor is it even adequate to receive Christ favorably at his second coming. Why, is not even uh, enough to patiently wait for his second coming. But what the Lord is saying here is that our calling as Christians is to eagerly, expectantly wait for his coming. But wait a minute. Do I hear those within the premillennial and amillennial camps asking, how can you postmillennialists eagerly wait for the Lord to return at all when you don't even believe that His coming could be today? How can you possibly anticipate an event you don't believe you'll be on earth to see? Good question. Since we... Postmillennialists do believe there are certain events that must yet occur before Christ returns, namely the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, all of Israel saved, and an age of perhaps thousands of years of unparalleled gospel and material prosperity upon this earth. How can we possibly live in eager expectation of the second coming of Christ? Well, let me ask you. Does the intervention of time, even a lot of time, have to diminish an eager anticipation of what is yet in the future? Certainly not. My eager expectation for 30 or 40 grandchildren 
is not eclipsed at all by the fact that I will probably have to wait 30 or 40 years. I eagerly anticipate and look forward to having 30 or 40 grandchildren. Nor is my longing for the coming of the Lord in the resurrection of all of God's children darkened by the fact that I may have to wait eagerly for Him to return for 30 or 40,000 years. My duty, dear ones, is to keep fanning and fanning and fanning that flame of hope. And in this case, a certain hope, a certain expectation of what will occur in the future. To keep fanning that in my soul by the continual supply of God's almighty grace. And that's your duty as well, beloved. You see, dear ones, it is not, it's not the, the amount of time at all. It's not the amount of time that intervenes between events that quenches the flame of hope in your life. It is rather the lack of a firm conviction of the certainty of that hope to come. And so when you lose hope, what has happened is that it's not that God hasn't kept His Word. It's not that there has intervened a lot of time when you think that God should have acted already. It's that you have lost the conviction and the certainty of what God has promised. If you are firmly convinced of that hope and have even a glimpse of the glory that awaits you in that hope, you will, by God's grace, be fanning the flame of that hope throughout your life. You'll be fanning the flame of that hope in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your sufferings, persecution, loneliness, discouragement, as well as in the times of blessing and health and success and prosperity and joy. Dear ones, because of the second coming of Christ, no Christian, absolutely no one who professes to know the Lord Jesus Christ can simply give up and quit because of the hope that is before them. That hope, you see, dear ones, pushes him. That hope prods him. That hope causes him to persevere to the very end. As we look at our text in 1 John, I want to just briefly review, <clears throat> since it has been a little time since we were in 1 John, I want to simply review a few things before we come to the points before us in the text. You'll recall that John has written this epistle in order to encourage Christians who are facing Gnostic false teachers who claim to know God and were teaching and leading many astray because of their false and errant doctrines. These Gnostic false teachers said they knew God through their mystical experiences. They had this, this mystical experience with God that gave them a knowledge of God that no one else had. They said this was the true knowledge. But John, on the other hand, emphasizes 
that God is known not through these mystical experiences. God is known in a true manner, in a true way, by that once and for all revealed historical account that we find in the Scriptures. That reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how God is known. The Spirit of God giving us life through reading His inspired Word. The Gnostics wanted to lift Jesus out of that biblical revelation. They wanted a Jesus of their own mystical experience so that they could interpret and define Him in any way they wanted. But John says that cannot be done. That's not the Jesus that has the power to save. The Jesus who saves, the Jesus who will come a second time for his people is the Jesus of the Bible. There your hope must be cast. You remember John has given three tests by which Christians can be assured that they have come to know the living God. The first test, the test of obedience. The second, the test of love. And third, the test of orthodoxy. Today we continue where we last left off. The last time that we addressed this this first epistle of John, we considered the first aspect of Christ's second coming, that great and awesome day of judgment. In 1 John 2.28, John says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. On that dreadful day, a day of judgment, the wicked will shrink away from the Lord in shame, knowing full well that they have rebelled against this righteous king and against his righteous commandments, just as Adam and Eve in the garden shrunk away and hid themselves from the living God when they sinned. So will the wicked on that day of judgment. And all the excuses given in this life for turning from the truth will evaporate before the all-piercing eye of the holy judge before whom they stand. And then the wicked, seeing their own desperate situation, will cast their gaze upon the children of God who will at that time shine forth clothed in the impeccable garments of Christ's perfect righteousness. The children of the devil will then wail and gnash their teeth as they are cast into eternal torment, while the children of God will rejoice and praise their gracious Father as they are led into eternal rest and joy. You see, the children of God, dear ones, will not shrink in shame on that last day. Rather, they will stand before the Lord on that great day of judgment with confidence, the text says. With confidence. Not confidence in themselves. 
but confidence in Christ, clothed in his righteousness. None of God's children at that time will doubt or question that they are in Christ, that they have been redeemed by Christ. At the resurrection, they will know at the certainty that they belong to the Lord. All of those who maybe throughout life have, have wandered in a lack of assurance, have questioned and doubted, have been weak in faith on that day of resurrection, as they stand before the Lord, they will know where they stand, that their confidence is in Christ and they will not shrink away. The wicked will shrink away. This doctrine of the second coming of Christ did not hold a place in the theological system of the Gnostics. Why? Because you recall, Gnostics did not believe that matter was good. They thought to escape the body was the essence of salvation. Why would they want to be raised again in a body of flesh? Even a glorified body. Which means that not only did they have a problem with the second coming of Christ and the general resurrection of all believers, but they even did not believe, therefore, in the resurrection of Christ himself. The two go hand in hand. If you believe in the resurrection of Christ, you will believe in the resurrection of the righteous on that last day, as well as the resurrection of the unrighteous to damnation. As we consider the text before us, Today, we'll be focusing our attention upon 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 29 through chapter 3, verse 3. The first point that comes before our attention from the Apostle John is that he gives to us another test, the test of righteousness. He gives this to us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29 through chapter 3, verse 1. John says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The test of righteousness. Now, this test of righteousness is essentially the same test as the test of obedience that we considered in 1 John 2, 3. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, John says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See, John is going to begin the same three tests that he first mentioned, the test of obedience, the test of love, and the test of orthodoxy, and he's going through the three tests again, repetition. 
The test of righteousness, dear ones, is that one is a child of God who is growing in God's righteous character. The one who is manifesting God's righteous character in his life. This is the one, John says, is assured and has assurance before God that he is born of God, that he is a child of God, growing in practicing righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is essentially conformity to the righteous character of God. Conformity to the righteous standard of God's holy character. That's righteousness. But where is God's righteous character imprinted? Where is it found? Well, first of all, it's found in his law. God's righteous character is found in his holy commandments. The law of God is a clear imprint of God's righteousness. Thus, the Bible teaches that God's law is good and holy and righteous. You see, the problem is not with God's law. The problem is with us. We are sinful. We are unable to keep God's holy commandments. And that brings us to the second place. We find a perfect imprint of God's righteousness, and that is in God's own Son. In God's law and in God's Son. Dear ones, you can only be righteous before an infinitely holy God on the basis of Christ's law-keeping. Not on the basis of your own law-keeping. Strictly speaking, if understood in the correct way, you are saved by the keeping of the law. However, it is only the perfect law keeping of Christ that God will receive as meeting his standards of righteousness. So, dear ones, you yourselves have died to the condemnation of the law of God, but you are not dead to joyful obedience to the law of God now that you are a Christian. Now, by the Spirit of God, you are to grow in ever greater conformity to that same law of God that once condemned you. Now, that is not legalism. That is sanctification. If a love for the law of God, yes, even a love for the jots and the tittles of God's law, is legalism, if it is legalism to love the righteousness of God, which the law of God is, then Christ himself was the greatest legalist that ever lived, for he kept the law of God perfectly. He loved God's law. He came to obey that standard of God's righteousness perfectly. No, dear ones, it is not legalism to love the law of God. 
It is legalism to seek to be righteous and approved before God on the basis of your law-keeping. But it is not legalism to love the law of God and to see that law as a continual standard that you must maintain in your own Christian life as you seek to be obedient, joyfully obedient to God. John's point in this text is simply this, dear ones. Just as you can see the image of the parents in their children, so you can see the image of God and his righteousness in his children. A few years ago, my wife was with a friend at a hospital in San Diego and as she was there, she happened to see a nurse that was working there. And as she looked at this nurse, she said to herself, what a striking resemblance between that woman and my husband, me. And she looked at the, the name on the woman's lapel, and her last name was Price. And she went up to this, this woman, never having met her, knowing nothing about her, said, where is your family from? Began asking a few questions like that. Come to find out, it was a second cousin of mine I've never met. But the resemblance, the striking resemblance is what drew her to ask those questions. In like manner, God says, there is a resemblance between God and his children in respect to righteousness. There is a love for the righteousness of God in the hearts of his people. Now, in this life, it is never a perfect reflection of God and his righteousness that you see in the child of God. That's what sanctification is all about. Sanctification taking us to the point of glorification where we come into absolute uh, conformity to that righteous character of Christ. Furthermore, the reflection of God's image in His children varies in degrees from child to child. We are all at different stages of sanctification in our lives. And even within the same child, that image will shine forth more brightly and more clearly as the process of sanctification proceeds. And even on certain days, you may say, what happened to that bright light of sanctification? Where did it go? But God is even in those times causing you to yearn for his righteousness and to come back to him to plead for his forgiveness that you may be restored. But the test here given by the Apostle John for the assurance, dear ones, for the assurance of God's children is that there will be experienced in his life a growing conformity to the God who begot him. A growing conformity. Not an instantaneous conformity, but a growing conformity. Now, as John 
considers and contemplates the glorious confidence of God's children as they stand before the Lord on that day of judgment. He is quite overcome at the incomprehensible love of God for his adopted children. And John cannot contain the awe and the wonder that is welling up within himself at God's amazing love for his children. And in chapter 3, verse 1, John finally just bursts out and says, Behold, what manner of love is this? John uses a Greek mode of expression that quite literally means, Look at this! Behold, look at this! From what country did this love come? From what country did this love come? In other words, what John is saying, this love of God for his children is totally alien to this world. This is extraterrestrial love. This is heavenly love. The world knows nothing about this kind of love. Consider this alien love for just a moment. We cannot pass over this too quickly. Where have you, dear ones, ever heard of such a love story? A righteous king sets his love upon hardened convicts. Imagine this being a a newspaper uh, story. And the headlines being, uh, A righteous king sets love upon hardened convicts. And these convicts upon whom the king has set his love are on death row. They have spurned his holy law and reviled the good name and reputation of this king and his righteous character. And in order to clear the criminals, these criminals who are in death row, of all the charges that are against them for their violation of his holy law, the king himself, the king, not not a lawyer, but the king himself, offers a sinless substitute who will willingly die as a despised criminal in the place of these vile criminals. In the unfathomable love, the infinite love of this great king, he sends his only begotten son to be that substitute, to bear the infinite anguish and torment of hell for these despised criminals. But once the king has accomplished a just payment for all of their transgressions through the death of his own dear son and has legally declared them righteous before his holy law, the king steps from behind that bench. He throws his arms around these now justified criminals and then legally adopts them into his royal family, making them heirs to all the wealth and riches within his vast kingdom. Where have you ever heard of a love like that? It is nothing of this world, believe me. And that is what John 
is wrestling with at this point. Three things about God's adopting love very quickly. God's adopting love is undeserved. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. According to the good pleasure of His will. Adoption, dear ones, is according to God's good pleasure. Not according to the good pleasure of your will. Not according to your worthiness. Not according to your lovableness. It is according to God's good pleasure that He has adopted you into His royal family. Nothing in you, nothing in me compelled God to love us in this way. If anything, everything about us compelled God to send His wrath upon us. And that's the mystery of God's infinite love. He simply chose to love you and adopt you into His family. He set His love upon you. Secondly, God's adopting love is redemptive. Not only undeserved, but it is redemptive. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Where does the love originate? Not in our hearts. The love originates in the heart of God and not simply expresses itself in word, but expresses itself in action. You know, adoption is ordinarily a very expensive process. I know of people who have adopted children and paid thousands of dollars in going through the adoption process. But no money can possibly compare with what God paid in order to adopt you unto himself. God demonstrated, dear ones, his unsearchable love for you, not by simply telling you, I love you. He demonstrated his love for you and what it cost him to adopt you. The blood of his own dear, beloved son. That which was of infinite value. That which you cannot put a price on is what God paid to adopt you. We sit back in amazement as we see Abraham willingly prepare to offer the promised son, Isaac. But God not only prepared to do so, God offered his son to purchase you 
to pay for your adoption. Why? Why did he do so? Why did he make that, uh, pay that price? Because of his adopting love. Thirdly, God's adopting love is powerfully effectual. Powerfully effectual. In Romans 8.29, the Word of God makes very clear how God completes what He begins with His adopting love. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He predestined you to adoption as sons in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It is a sure thing. You will be, from the beginning to the end, you will complete the process of adoption. You have been adopted, but we will see there is yet the fulfillment of all that adoption implies yet in the future. And then in John chapter 6, notice this, the words of the Lord Jesus himself. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Dear ones, to raise his beloved children up at that last day is the culmination of this adoption process. That is the final thing. When we receive our glorious inheritance in full, the redemption of our bodies and all the wealth and riches of heaven. And that is what Jesus is pointing to. He says from the time that he receives one he will fulfill and keep that person within the family of God until he raises that one up on that final day. What a glorious promise. God's love, dear ones, is not a mere ineffectual wish for your well-being. A hope, as we would define hope today. His love is not a well-intentioned love that falls short of realizing its purpose. God's love is sovereign. God's love is almighty love and accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. In your baptism, you were sealed with the name of the triune God. God's name was placed upon you as his child. And all the privileges that being a child of God entails were passed on to you. Just as a wife receives the name of her husband, 
when she is joined together with him. She forsakes her name and receives his name. So that one who is adopted into the family of God and receives the seal of baptism, the name of God is confirmed to that one at that point through his baptism. Now, I have no adopted children myself. But I've had the privilege of having in my congregations those who do have adopted children. And you might as well rip out their hearts, rip out the hearts of these parents as to try to uh, tell them or communicate to them that that child is not their real child, even though that child is adopted. You might as well shoot them in the head as to try and convince them that they are not the real parents. Biological parents, no. Real parents, yes. You want to see parental jealousy aroused to the nth degree simply imply that that adopted child is not their real child. And you will see flames and smoke pouring forth from their nose. Rightfully so. Dear ones, God loves you. His adopted children. No less than He loves his own natural son. How much does he love you? Look to the son. How much does he love the son? That's the question you need to ask. That's how much he loves you. He was willing to take his own son and to sacrifice his son in order that he might fulfill and accomplish his adopting love for you. How despicable the shame to show contempt for such love. To trample underfoot this kind of love. You know, that is precisely the point that God is making through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16. Turn with me there for just a moment. Ezekiel 16. God is demonstrating to His people how despicable the shame and the way they have treated this love which He has for them. Verse 1, Again the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor swathed in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you, 
and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. God goes on to explain that at the point in time when Jerusalem became mature, he even covered her nakedness, took her as his covenant wife, bestowed upon her covenant blessings, showed how loyal and faithful of a husband he would be to her. And then we come to verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Verse 20. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? That you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? Now listen, here's the summation, the climax of this particular point God is making with Jerusalem. And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare struggling in your blood. How can you show contempt for that kind of love, God says, when I rescued you while you were in your blood? And God is saying the same thing through the prophet John, the apostle John, about the love of God In the remaining minutes that we have here for us, we want to focus our attention upon the last point. That first point, a test of righteousness. You see, adoption implies that you will look like your father. That's what John is saying. You are the adopted children of the Most High God. Act like it. But not only is there the test of righteousness, He concludes this brief section with a motivation to righteousness. A test of righteousness and now a motivation to righteousness. And that motivation is found in that future resurrection at the second coming of Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, we find these words. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Having considered the test of righteousness, John now moves on to the motivation to practice righteousness in the life of the child of God, and it is the resurrection of God's children. We've looked at in the past the judgment, which is the first aspect that John mentions in regard to Christ's second coming, and now John ties this together with the second aspect of Christ's coming, namely the resurrection Notice how the Apostle John, at this point, ties together the subject of our adoption and the resurrection. 
unites these two doctrines, the adoption and the resurrection. Why does he do so? Why does he bind these two doctrines together? Well, because the resurrection at Christ's second coming, as I've alluded to earlier, is the full realization of our adoption. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Notice how the Apostle Paul ties together the resurrection and our adoption. Beginning with verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, here's this word again, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation. That's not talking about the sons of God. Creation eagerly waits, Paul says. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. He's talking about the curse that God put upon creation when man fell. All of creation was affected by the fall of man. But it was done so with a view to the revealing of the sons of God at the very end of time. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, and here's our word again, eagerly waiting for the adoption of the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope. Here's our hope, beloved. This is the hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That hope is the redemption of our bodies when our Adoption will be fully realized. So you see there is an already aspect to our adoption. Because John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God. So there is an already aspect. We are presently the children of God. We now have the name of God and the spirit of adoption given to us. We now enjoy the fatherly care and discipline of our Father. We have tasted in part of our inheritance as God's children. But there is also an aspect of our adoption of which we have not yet tasted. And that is the redemption of our bodies. That certain event when Christ will return and we will enter into fully our inheritance as his beloved children. The future glorious hope of our present adoption is that when He is revealed, John says, when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Notice He says, we shall be like Him. We will not be the same as Him. We will be like Him. He is and forever will be the divine Son of God 
who as to his very nature is God, who possesses incommunicable attributes, we can only mirror the Lord in that way. But we can never be infinitely God. We can never be omniscient. We will grow in knowledge. God alone is eternal. God alone has no beginning and end. But we will continue living with everlasting life in his presence. But how will we be like Christ then? Well, we will be like Christ in a finite way. We will mirror those infinite communicable attributes of God, His righteousness, His holy character, all of those that pertain to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will mirror. We shall be like Him in that we will have that glorified body. We will be removed from the curse finally, once and for all. Now, it's true that Christ has already gained the victory through his death and his resurrection. And on the basis of that resurrection, we will be raised. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. His resurrection guarantees our justification. It says he was raised because of our justification in Romans 4.25. You see, his resurrection proves without a shadow of a doubt that he did overcome sin, that he did pay the price, that God was satisfied with the sacrifice which Christ offered upon the cross. And his resurrection confirms that. But until that time in the future, when death is swallowed up in victory, Death now is not viewed as a friend. Death is viewed as an enemy. Death is viewed as a foe. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus due to the curse of death that had fallen upon one that he loved. Jesus wept in the Garden of Gethsemane at the curse of death that he was about to endure. An enemy. Paul calls death an enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death, dear ones, is an enemy. It is a curse. But it will be swallowed up in that glorious day. In great victory. And all of God's children will revel in that victory, in that day. It is certainly true that Christ has removed the sting of death for the Christian now through his death and resurrection. And we are now assured that because Christ rose from the grave that sin has been once and forever been paid. And that after death there is the presence of God to enjoy in a certain resurrection. We are assured of these things because Christ has been raised from the dead. And John says, such a hope purifies the life of the children of God. Such a hope, dear ones, makes the suffering of this life possible. How do you endure persecution and suffering? How do you endure 
discouragement and opposition. Such a hope, John says, purifies your life. All of it is short-lived in comparison to that eternal glory. That is the event for which we, the children of God, are to eagerly anticipate. I recently, in conclusion, had the opportunity to experience that eager waiting, I believe to some degree anyway, that eager waiting that John speaks of, or that, um, that the writer to the Hebrews speaks of, that Paul speaks of. I was waiting eagerly for my wife to return from Southern California, where she spent a couple weeks. In this case, I knew when she would return, and I was longing to be reunited with her. How the heart aches to be united to one so dearly loved. Surely, you all know what I mean. Think, dear ones, how many events you anxiously await in this life. Children, Think how you anxiously and eagerly wait for that birthday to come. Or think how you wait for the school year to end with great eager anticipation when you'll finally be able to enjoy your vacation. Young people, think how you eagerly anticipate your day of graduation or buying your first car. Or adults, how you eagerly anticipate your wedding day. I look so forward to uh, that momentous event in my life that I actually prayed, Lord, please delay your coming until after my wedding day. I was eagerly anticipating. I was a premillennialist then too. I thought the Lord could come at any moment. But I was eagerly anticipating that wedding date. Or think, adults, how you anticipate eagerly the purchase of your first house or the birth of your baby or the visit, that special visit from a loved one or a promotion at work. But now I ask myself, am I eagerly waiting for the second coming of my Savior as I once longed and waited for that wedding day? Dear ones, when you think of that great and glorious day when Christ will appear, are you simply willing to receive Him as a guest? Or are you ready to receive Him as a guest favorably? Or are you patiently waiting for Him to appear? Or is your heart eagerly longing to see Him? Is there that eager anticipation for the Lord's second advent in your affections? Dear ones, your calling, your duty is to fuel and to fan the flame of hope within you, looking for that glorious day when all of God's children will receive their final inheritance.
Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask and plead with you today to give to us that grace to eagerly await your coming, the coming of your Son. Lord, we do not expect to be here upon the earth when the Lord Jesus returns. Nevertheless, even while in heaven, we can eagerly anticipate and expect his coming. For it will even there mean the glorious culmination when our soul will be reunited with our body and we will enter into our full inheritance as your adopted children. O Lord God, we ask that, Lord, you would give to us this hope and that it would, like the sun of the midday, dispel the darkness, dispel the clouds, that seem to hover over our lives, that we would look beyond the clouds to that glorious hope that is before us, and that as a result, we would be righteous as He is righteous, that that hope would purify our lives. For Jesus' sake, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
To admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.